Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950 in the Twin Cities. How are you? Happy, happy Monday to you. Happy Monday. Happy cold Monday up here in the Twin Cities. Um... I uh, was telling Brett uh, Johnson, uh, the producer, that uh, we bikers, because he's a biker like me, have lost three weeks of um, biking weather because we're turning to winter like tomorrow with snow. So um, I'm not happy about that, but I am happy that you are here. I'm happy to have this show. We have a great show. The big interview is with a woman named Laura Bellin, who has a blog known as Bleeding Heartland, down in Iowa about Iowa politics. You will really enjoy that interview. And um, and we're going to be talking about politics for a change. Uh, so there you go. Uh, then, of course, we have my C-block um, at the end of the show, where I'll talk a little bit about gratitude. But let's begin with this feature, this week's featured idealist. Her name is Dolores Huerta. She is a champion of farm workers and of women. Frankly, I have to admit to you that I am appalled that I hadn't previously known about Dolores Huerta. Uh, She is a looming and large, maybe a larger-than-life idealist. And I only tumbled onto her because uh, just the other day I saw that her name, she is one of the 2020 recipients of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization Ripple of Hope Award. And I'm like, who is this person? I never heard about her. And then I started exploring on Google and um, some other websites. And I found out that Dolores Huerta is somebody we all need to know about. So here's the quick background. She was born in 1930. She is still alive, so that makes her 90 years old. She was born in New Mexico, um, but her parents divorced when she was three. Her mother then moved to Stockton, California, and that's where Dolores grew up. Still, uh, Dolores's father must have had some influence on her relative to what's possible about human possibilities because her father was a miner and a farm worker, but he was also elected to the New Mexico legislature in 1938. So her father, he was Hispanic and he gets elected to the New Mexico legislature in the late 1930s. Think about that. So he must have been a force of his own in terms of dynamic personality. And I've got to believe that that planted some seed in Dolores Huerta's mind as she heard his stories. Growing up in Stockton, California, Dolores lived a somewhat privileged life. Her mother owned a 70-room hotel, but her mother, whom Dolores described as, quote, kind and compassionate, unquote, often rented rooms to working-class people and sometimes gave the rooms out for free. In the late 1940s, Dolores graduated from a local Stockton college with a teaching degree. Again, some privilege. She began teaching, but soon realized there was another calling for her as she has said and written, quote, I couldn't tolerate seeing kids come to class hungry and needing shoes. I thought I could do more by organizing farm workers than by uh, trying to teach their hungry children, unquote. When she was 25 years old, she co-founded a grassroots organization that fought to improve the lives of migrant farm workers. That's 25 years old. In that same year, again, when she was 25, she became a lobbyist in California, Um, I got to believe way back then there weren't a whole lot of 25-year-old female lobbyists. And uh, right away she began to experience pushback. Most lobbyists were men 
and she also spoke Spanish. She was Latina. Um, and so she faced the double-edged sword of discrimination and marginalization. Eventually, Dolores Huerta met Cesar Chavez, um, and together they launched the National Farm Workers Association. The NFWA worked to improve working conditions for farm workers. And uh, Dolores uh, Huerta's and C C Cesar Chavez's work uh, paid off. Uh, Dolores... Uh, uh, with her ability to lobby, uh, helped get a 1963 California law passed, which secured aid, to, aid for dependent children and families and disability insurance. Both uh, were awarded or allowed uh, for uh, farm workers. Twelve years later, Dolores had a role in helping pass the Agricultural Labor Relations Act. That was in 1975, which granted California farm workers the right to organize and collectively bargain. Now, you may recall that that came um, after there were some boycotts around uh, grapes and other actions taken. And Dolores had roles with, boy uh, with the boycotts of the grape growers. And when she was helping to organize one of those boycotts, she met Gloria Steinem. You know, Gloria Steinem, the one, you know, the, the <laughs> probably the most famous feminist um, in American history. Um, well, one of the most famous. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, Dolores... Huerta and Gloria Steinman became friends, and uh, um, and Steinman rubbed off on Dolores, and so it shifted the way Dolores looked at the world and caused her to want to expand the way her work was to take into account the fight for women's rights. Dolores later called herself a, quote, born-again feminist, unquote. Eventually, Dolores would be named the honorary co-chair of the Women's March on Washington in January 2017. So I'm bringing you forward very quickly. Um, remember that march. That happened uh, the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated. There were, what, a million women in D.C. to march for women's rights and to, to protest the— the president, and uh, Dolores was named the honorary co-chair of that march. Other things to note about Dolores Huerta. In 1968, because of her role in organizing uh, political action in California in 1968, she stood next to Robert F. Kennedy um, at the Ambassador Hotel on the night that RFK, Bobby Kennedy, won the California primary. She was right next to him at the podium. Um, and then, as we know, moments later, um, Bobby Kennedy was shot and a day later died. Dolores uh, Huerta has also been arrested 22 times in nonviolent protests. Now, who does that remind you of? You know, that reminds you of uh, John Lewis, who um, I've highlighted in the show within the last couple of months. John Lewis having been arrested, I think, 40 times. And think about this. These are people who go into custody— you know, peacefully, they go into custody to make points about how society is unfair. That's what idealists do. Um, during one protest, one nonviolent protest in 1988, she was protesting, Dolores Huerta was then protesting, uh, um, then um, uh, George W., George, uh, whatever the first George Bush's uh, policies uh, towards women. She was protesting in San Francisco, and in the course of that protest, she was savagely beaten by a San Francisco police officer using a baton. He broke four of her ribs and ruptured her spleen that put her in the hospital for a good long time. 
and that beating was also caught on tape. Dolores Hurtis later sued the San Francisco Police Department, won a large settlement, which he then gave to farm worker causes. Dolores Herta is also the founder of the Dolores Herta Foundation, which works for greater political activism and more elected offices for Latinx women. At least four elementary schools and one high school in the West have been named after Dolores Herta. And April, t- and you know, so I mean, again, why did I not know about this? Fantastic woman, and and I'm going to assume, why do many of you not know about her? Um, April 10th in California is known as the Dolores Huerta Day. She has her own day, Um, and she is the subject of the 2017 movie titled Dolores. And in 2012, President Obama bestowed upon Dolores Huerta the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, You know... uh, (laughs) I am really embarrassed about not knowing who Dolores Huerta was. Um, and of course, and I'll talk about this in the last segment, about how I'm actually very grateful for this radio show, even though it's a bit of work for me. But now you know about Dolores Huerta as well. She is the ripe old age of 90. And who else, who knows what else before she passes that this idealist may accomplish. I mean, what a life. What an impact. This is what idealists do. And you know what? And the fact that I did not know about her, and I am, you know, I'm on a lot of different things. I'm a political science major, you know, uh, long ago. Um, But, you know, I'm plugged into a lot of different things in a variety of ways. The fact that she and, and if you go to Wikipedia, you will see I am talking about a long, long list of awards and accolades for this woman. But note, she's not a household name. So she didn't ever try to capitalize on fame. Instead, she just did the work. And that is really what I find incredible about this woman, about this idealist. Idealists, truly, that is what they do. They are not in it for self-aggrandizement. They are in it to change the darn world. And so, um, obviously, that's what Dolores Huerta has done. I'm in awe of this woman. So, read up on her. And, um, and go find yourself some other idealists that you don't know about. Read about their lives. Get an idea of what, why the, what work they've done and why they've been effective. Okay? All right. All right. That ends our first segment. When we come back from our break, um, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to interview, Del- uh, not Dolores, but um, Laura Bellin, uh, who is a blogger in Iowa, blogs about politics. You will love uh, hearing about Bleeding Heartland. If you like this show, visit my website at lakrug.com. Email me at lajkrug at gmail. I love hearing from you. We'll be back in a sec. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. 
Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the Reuse Warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota.com. And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. So please check out Dolores Huerta um, because uh, she is quite the idealist and uh, quite the icon. And now um, for the big interview, I've got another idealist, although she uh, she's a little reluctant to call herself that. I have on the line with me Laura Bellin, who is the, the, the curator of a wonderful a blog about politics in Iowa, Bleeding Heartland. Laura, are you there on the line with me? I'm here. Thanks for having me, Ellie. Oh, thanks for being on Ellie 2.0 Radio, Laura. I really, really appreciate it. So you have this wonderful blog, Bleeding Heartland, which is about Iowa politics, but not entirely. You've got a couple of other things that are are in there. Um, and uh, I, I got picked up on your blog because I'm a Twitter junkie, and somehow I started following you and, and, and seeing what you've got going on. Tell us a little bit about the blog, and, let's, uh, and I want to talk specifically about some key things going on in Iowa politics around the senator race, senatorial race and some other things. Well, thanks. Bleeding Heartland was started in 2007 by a couple of college students who had had their own political blogs, and there was a rage in the middle of the last decade of creating community, state-based, political websites with a progressive focus. They were modeled on the Daily Coast, if that's a website you or your listeners are familiar with. And so these guys wanted to create a community blog for Iowa, and they launched it in January 2007. And then one of the founders quickly got hired by the Iowa Democratic Party in a position that didn't allow him to do any outside blogging. So I was a very early registered user and commenter on Bleeding Heartland, and he invited me to be a front-pager and that was around the spring of 2007. And since early 2008, I've been the primary author at the website, as well as the editor and the publisher. So I publish uh, hundreds of stories by other authors a year. Every year, I would say I, I write about half of the content on the website, and then the other half of the posts are by uh, more than 100 different guest authors. So I really try to publish a diverse range of views, but generally speaking with a progressive orientation. Right. And, and I mean, and you, you've been able to accomplish quite a bit. I mean, you're, you've got close to 16,000 followers on Twitter for the, uh, for the blog, and you're getting somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 visitors a day to Bleeding Heartland. So this is quite an accomplishment for you to, 
you know, started out by college students, but for you to really grab onto it. And and do you view yourself as a political reporter? I know your background, uh, interestingly, is about uh, um, Russian politics. Yes, I, I worked for about 10 years in covering Russian politics. I considered myself more of an analyst or an analytical writer rather than a reporter, because most of the years that I was covering Russia, I wasn't reporting directly from the ground in the country. I was more um, writing for a specialist audience who followed Russia from abroad. But I do consider myself a reporter. I mean, I blend reporting and commentary, so I don't, um, I don't follow the same conventional journalism practices of pretending not to have an opinion about the issues I cover. And I, and I try to do, I still do quite a bit of analytical writing, but I do break a lot of news as well. So, I mean, I consider myself... Uh, both a reporter and a commentator. Well, and I, you know, as I prepared for the show, I did, of course, a Google search, and I saw a story about you having difficulty getting press credentials um, to get into the uh, the Iowa House to do some reporting. Am I right about that? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a funny thing. I had, for most of the time, I've been writing at Bleeding Heartland. I have not formally sought credentials to cover the Iowa legislature, and partly that was because. When I started writing for the blog, I had a toddler and a preschooler, and I really didn't have a lot of time. But my kids are older now. They're teenagers. And I had always thought that one day I'd spend more time at the State House. And in late 2018, a few different things happened. Some of the other Iowa media cut back on their State House reporting. And I thought, you know, I'm going to probably spend more time down at the Capitol this upcoming legislative session. So I think I'll just apply for credentials. And honestly, I never expected it to be a big deal. It never occurred to me. (laughs) I guess maybe I am a little bit naive, but it didn't occur to me that the Republican-controlled legislature would refuse to acknowledge that I was a reporter. I know for a fact that a lot of Republican legislative staff and even some of the lawmakers themselves read my website. So in any case, in early 2019, I was denied credentials by the Iowa House. The Iowa Senate did not formally deny me credentials, but then they uh, refused to let me work in the press gallery where all the other credentialed reporters yeah. are. And then the governor's office also said that they don't consider me a credentialed member of the media. So uh, they have actually physically escorted me out of the governor's press conferences before. And when she's had this year because of COVID, she's done a lot of press conferences where most of the reporters call in. And her press secretary won't even give me the phone number to call in. So I have to just watch it online or on TV like everybody else. But that was really unexpected for me because I definitely meet the standard of doing a substantial amount of of original reporting about Iowa politics. So I don't think anyone could credibly claim that I'm not a member of the media. No, and it's clear to me that you absolutely are. And that just, I mean, as a... you know, I'm I'm always going to be an Iowan, even though I live up here in the Twin Cities. That just angers the heck out of me because Iowans are supposed to get above some of that political stuff and understand there are certain things that are just right, and that is including the freedom of speech and the press. So, all right, well, yeah, it's, it's not even constitutional. I mean, a political party or candidate could block any reporter they want to, but a government body or government official has to apply media restrictions uniformly under the First Amendment and right. under the, the part of the Iowa Constitution that's similar, that protects press freedom. So they actually aren't allowed to, to discriminate. I've had people say, well, what do you expect? You know, you're always criticizing Republicans, but under the Constitution, they can't deny me access 
based on content or viewpoints expressed on my website. So, I mean, we, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but did you ever get a lawyer and try and uh, challenge I, it in court? I have court? not ruled out legal action. I'm Right now I'm waiting to see what happens in this election because the Democrats could gain control of the Iowa House. And But I, I definitely haven't ruled out legal action, and I will be applying for credentials to cover the upcoming 2021 session in the Iowa House yeah. and Senate. And uh, the governor's office has told me that the reason they don't consider me credentialed media is because I'm not credentialed in the Iowa House. So right. if it's Democrats a- take control of the Iowa House... There you It'll go. be interesting to see whether they come up with another pretext to keep me out of the governor's press conferences. All right. Well, that okay. Well, you 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 keep pressing them. I know. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> um, all right. So we have a, about forty seconds before we have to take our break. So I'm going to end up at least just throwing the question out there at you. You are keeping your eye on a lot of things that are happening in Iowa, and right now, one of the bellwethers for the entire election is what is happening with Teresa Greenfield and Joni Ernst. Uh, Joni Ernst is, of course, the current uh, senator, from, uh, junior senator from Iowa. When we come back from our break. Laura, I really want to get your take on what what's going on with that with that race, particularly after the most recent debate where Joni Ernst flubbed the most basic question that any any candidate for political office in Iowa should should be able to be aware with uh, be aware of and be ready for. Okay. Uh, I'm ready. Okay. All right. All right. Laura, we'll come back in a second. Everyone, you're listening to me. I'm speaking with Laura Bellin, who is the curator of Bleeding Heartland. It's a wonderful blog um, uh, about Iowa politics. If you like what you hear on the show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail uh, or follow me on Twitter. The handle is at elliekrug. We will be back in a second with more with Laura Bellin. Thanks. If you're looking to save money on your home or building improvement project, check out Better Futures Minnesota's reuse retail warehouse in South Minneapolis. We carry salvage building materials such as cabinetry, flooring, plumbing fixtures, appliances, lighting, and more, saving you money and saving the planet by keeping these items out of the landfill, by giving them another life. Selections change daily, and we also take donations. Go to betterfuturesminnesota.com and look under Reuse Warehouse to learn more. Let us know AM950 sent you. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. We're in the middle of the big interview with Laura Bellin, who is the curator of Bleeding Heartland, a wonderful, trust me, a wonderful blog about Iowa politics, but it's also about a whole lot of other things um, in addition to that. Laura, 
Um, before we took our break, I threw a big question at you about the senatorial race going on down in Iowa, which has gotten very heated. Um, Teresa Greenfield is challenging uh, junior Senator uh, Joni Ernst, who's had one term as uh, Iowa's senator. And uh, bring us up to, un- up to date on what's going on with that race, uh, because it is so it's pivotal, of course, uh, towards uh, shifting the the Senate for, um, you know, nationally. But it's also in Iowa. I think it's very indicative of, of what, the way Iowans are viewing the world. So give us your take. Well, I'm pleased to say that the Iowa Senate race is a toss-up, and that's something that even a year ago, and certainly two or three years ago, I never would have anticipated. You know, Iowans tend to re-elect their incumbents. The last sitting U.S. senator to lose an election in Iowa was in 1984, a Republican Roger Jepson lost to Tom Harkin, the great progressive, and also a great idealist, I would say. Mm-hmm. But uh, Joni Ernst has really not helped herself, and she has... Part of it, the national environment is very unfavorable to Republicans. The combination of Trump being a disaster and COVID and the economy hasn't helped them. But I think that fundamentally, Ernst just misread the Iowa electorate. And she saw after the 2014 and the 2016 elections when we really moved quite a bit to the right, I think that she didn't anticipate that she would have to do much to keep getting reelected forever. I mean, she looked at the examples of Chuck Grassley and Tom Harkin, who were reelected for decades and just figured, you know, as long as she put in the time, she would be easily reelected. And what we've seen is that she's just a rubber stamp for the Republican agenda, and she hasn't carved out any kind of an independent identity as a voice for Iowa. And I think even if she had just picked one or two issues where she could distinguish herself from the Trump administration or national Republicans, I think she'd be in a stronger situation. And she also just doesn't have any legislative accomplishments. Like Tom Harkin was able to get the Americans with Disabilities Act passed during his first term, and that's just a monumental accomplishment. And Joni Ernst doesn't really have anything. So I think that Teresa Greenfield, the Democratic challenger, is running a very solid campaign. Uh, The polls are very close. Most of the recent polls have shown Greenfield a little bit ahead, but within the margin of error. So I'm calling it a toss-up. I'm not ready to say the race is tilting to Greenfield. But definitely, Ernst is in big trouble, and I don't think many people in either party expected that a couple of years ago. Well, one of the things, uh, you know, on your blog, you, 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 you know, you talk about how um, Joni Ernst failed to really do what Chuck Grassley did when he started as senator for Iowa. Um, you know, and I'm not, uh, I'll just tell you, I'm not a big fan of Chuck Grassley, but, you know, Grassley was a thorn in the side for the Pentagon and for President Reagan um, because Chuck Grassley in his, you know, first term, he started going after waste um, in the Pentagon. And, you know, the $1,100 toilet seat and, you know, you know, and then the coffee cup holder and all that stuff. But, he, he, he did make a name for himself. And in, in doing that, he also kind of exemplified Iowa values because Iowans are, you know, generally, you know, they're pretty frugal people. And and generally they're, you know, they want to make sure they get value for their dollar. But Joni Ernst didn't do that. Tell us about um, the debate between Greenfield and Ernst and what happened. Well, there was one big question that got thrown out. Go yeah, it, was, it was funny because it... For most of this summer and fall, Ernst has been the one saying she wants to do more debates and more debates. She actually trans- uh, she challenged Greenfield to a series of six debates over the summer. And usually incumbents only do that when they know they're behind. So Greenfield agreed to three. And the first two, I would say, were uneventful. 
Um, Joni Ernst has a lot more experience with the format and much more experience being on television. So if anything, I would say maybe she was a little bit more polished. And I don't think anyone expected there to be a game-changing moment in the third debate. But uh, what happened was the moderators asked, first they asked Teresa Greenfield, uh, what's the current break-even price for corn? And she knew that exactly down to the penny. And then she talked about, she, she demonstrated just in about 30 seconds that she really understands how uh, the business model works for farmers. She grew up on a farm. They both grew up on farms. And But when it was Ernst's turn and she was asked about the price of soybeans, she couldn't answer the question. And you know she claims that she couldn't hear the question, but then they gave her another chance and she really didn't want to answer. And I've had a lot of people have asked me, well, who cares whether you know the price of oh corn my and God. soybeans? And, you know, I got to tell you that in, in Iowa politics, it's just a basic measure of political literacy. And I even have a friend, I'm a city girl, right? I grew up in the Des Moines area and live here, but I have a friend who's also from Des Moines. And he told me that when he started working in the legislature as, as a staffer in the 80s or 90s, he got in the habit of always checking mm-hmm. the newspaper every morning for the price of corn and beans, because it's one of those small talk things that when you're around people in the legislature or people in Iowa politics, it's just like asking about the weather. So it really showed, I, I, unfortunately for Ernst, it really played into the idea that she's lost touch with Iowa and she's become too much like Washington. And to the extent that she claims she couldn't hear the question well because of technical problems, that was her own fault because they were supposed to have the debate in person. And the reason why it was done via remote link was because she went back to Washington to break her promise about confirming a Supreme Court justice in an election year. Right, right. And, and, um, it was, I mean, I watched it several times and it was very clear that she heard the question because, you know, she threw out the price. I mean, if she didn't, you know, she didn't hear the question properly, how would she, you know, know to throw out a price for corn, for a beans? Um, and she was way off, even if she thought they were asking her about corn, she was way off as well for oh, price for corn. Yeah, so. yeah. Way, way, way off. Well, all right. So... So tell us about Iowa. One of the things that I had asked you to when we prepped for this show was what's going on in Iowa around diversity and inclusion. So now we're changing the topic dramatically, okay? You know that I'm transgender. I find mm-hmm. you and you know that I mean, I came out in 2009 as the first Iowa lawyer to ever do that. I eventually lost my law practice as a result. It all turned out just fine. I'm not complaining. But, you know, I've I I am an Iowan still at heart. I always will be. And I I continue to watch the state about how it's gone and marginalized transgender people. I mean, you've had multiple bills there about bathrooms and stuff like that for transgender people. What what is your take on on why Iowa, you know, a state that was so incredibly progressive in many ways. I mean, heck, that was the third state to, you know, where the Supreme Court unanimously ruled you know, that marriage equality was was the law of the land for Iowa. What has happened to our state? Well, first, I just want to say, I'm so sorry that you had that experience of losing your law practice and people not being supportive when you transitioned. And it just goes to show that laws are important, but laws aren't everything, because Iowa actually added uh, sexual orientation and gender identity protections to our state Civil Rights Act in 2007. Right. So we were among the early states. That was the first year of a Democratic trifecta. Democrats controlled both chambers of the legislature, and Chuck Culver was the governor. And they got that they got those amendments passed to the Civil Rights Act. It was very important, but it, it's, it's disheartening to hear that even a couple of years after that, that, uh, that 
the community wasn't more welcoming. Well, and, and just, I, I, I'm going to interrupt you. I just need to make clear the legal community was incredibly supportive of me. But I had mm-hmm. the misfortune of representing two of the most not friendly LGBTQ industries, railroads and trucking companies. So that was mm. why the practice went down the tubes. Okay. Mm. But go okay. but go on. What what has happened well, to our state? I think that generally speaking, you know, Iowa is much more inclusive than it was certainly when I was growing up. I didn't know a single out person at any high school in the area in the nineteen eighties. I knew people who came out later when they went to college far away. But I and I I was at some of I I had friends I attended one of the biggest high schools in the Des Moines area. And so it is more inclusive now, especially in um, in large cities, but not only. I mean, Iowa Safe Schools, which is uh, an advocacy group that works with students all over the state, I mean, they help set up gay-straight alliances, even at schools in little towns, I mean, medium-sized cities, but tiny towns even. Some of these high schools will have gay-straight alliances. So it's kind of amazing, and I think that the younger generation is going to end up fixing this for us. But, I mean, unfortunately, there still are a lot of people who are um, very stuck in old ideas, and as you, uh, your listeners may not know, but after the Iowa Supreme Court unanimously uh, struck down our state's Defense of Marriage Act in 2009 and said that, that marriage equality was going to be uh, the law in Iowa, there was a huge backlash, and yep. three Iowa Supreme Court justices got voted out the following year. I'm pleased to say that in subsequent elections, the Supreme Court justices who had participated in that ruling were retained and able to hold their seats. But, you know, that was a very chilling thing to have happen yep. in our state. And the Republican governance, you know, it just, it hasn't been good for diversity and inclusion. They, in uh, 2019, they passed an amendment to the budget that was specifically designed to exclude Medicaid coverage for gender-affirming surgery. It just, you know, a very heartless thing to do. I also think unconstitutional, but that case is still working its way through the courts right now. So we don't have a final wording, a verdict on that from the courts. But um, and the only thing I can, the only good thing I can say is that efforts to pass like bathroom bills or a what they they call their so-called religious freedom act, which is more like a right to discriminate act, those have not advanced in the legislature. But I would say the main reason they haven't advanced is because of lobbying from the business community that they know this will be bad right. for their recruiting and retention of employees. They also don't want to deal with tourism boycotts. And so, you know, that has really probably saved us more than the progressive advocacy uh, community has. So it's, it's overall, I would say it's a discouraging picture. I'm hopeful that if Democrats can at least win back one chamber of the legislature, then we won't have to worry anymore about any of those laws. I mean, I, with, the good thing is that within the Iowa Democratic establishment now, you really don't have any... I mean, nobody is publicly espousing anti-LGBTQ views, which wasn't the case 20, 25 years ago. Right, right. Well, um, well, I can only hope that things uh, get righted uh, uh, legislatively in, in Iowa in terms of makeup of the legislature. So, Laura, we have time for one last question, okay? And that is this. Um, It's very clear to me from your blog and from our conversations, you are an idealist, someone who does very much want the world to be a better place and that you are actively using your words and your platform for that. I don't know if you describe yourself as an idealist, I would do that, but what made you the way that you are? How did you get to this point where you're willing to devote 
this time you're you're willing to go out on on limbs. You are doing that and and be an advocate um, in a variety of ways, even though you're also a journalist. Well, I am really passionate about politics. I always have been, almost since I can remember. My family, I'm the youngest of a big family, and I grew up and we always talked about politics around the dinner table. So I tend to think of myself as more of a pragmatist than an idealist. But I think that in the sense of wanting to make the world a better place, I definitely am an idealist. I'm Jewish, and in Judaism there's a concept of tikkun olam, which is to heal and repair the world, and uh, that that drives a lot of what I do. And I do have, I, I have a position of privilege. I have a platform. I have editorial freedom. And I want to be able to use that for good and also to create, to give space for others to have a voice, others whose viewpoints might not be reflected in the mainstream media. So I just feel, I mean, <laughs> on any given day, if I had more time or needed less sleep, I mean, I would just rather spend more time doing what I'm doing because I'm just... Uh, passionate about so many political issues. And I always have trouble when people ask, like, well, what's the most important thing to you? Because it's really so many issues are important to me. And that's the biggest challenge for me on any given day. If I could write Mm -hmm. six different stories, but I only have time to pursue one or two of them, which ones do I choose? Well, Laura, I love uh, to repair and heal the world because we need more of you out there. We need more humans that are working to do that. We have such such work ahead of us, um, given the current state of America and the, and the presidential election. Laura, I just want to thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio. It has been a real honor to talk to you. And I, frankly, I could talk to you for another couple of hours, but we don't have that time. But thanks well, for- thanks so much for inviting me, Ellie. Oh, you're, you're welcome. And, and, and thanks again for giving me of your time. All right, listeners, we've been speaking with Laura Bellin, who is the curator of Bleeding Heartland. Go visit the website, visit the blog, Bleeding Heartland. And um, and when we come back from our break, I'm going to give you my C-block where I talk about my work as an idealist. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the Reuse Warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out reusebfm.com. That's reusebfm, as in betterfuturesminnesota.com. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio, this is me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950. Okay, Laura Bellin, it's true, I could have talked to her for a couple of hours. Um, and just um, please, go go check out her blog, um, go 
follow her on Twitter. She's just very astute. Bleeding Heartland. All right, we're in my C block now, and we're going to talk. Um, I talk about my work as an idealist, and frankly, some of my just trying to survive life as a human. And so, I want to start out by sharing with you that um, you know I wear a number of bracelets. Well, in the old days, I mean, I'm not wearing a whole lot of bracelets around the home these days, but um, I wear a lot of uh, silver bracelets, and I like the way that they clang with each other, and and it just helps. Um, me uh, make my way sometimes. But one of those bracelets is uh, kind of a, you know, it's not all that fancy, but it's got a saying stamped into it. And it happens to be my favorite bracelet of all, um, even though it's not all that fancy. And what the saying is in the bracelet is this, quote, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor, unquote. And um, in that really bracelet gives me great comfort because, um, you know, as a transgender human who does not uh, pass entirely for female because of this darn voice, um, it has not been a smooth sea. Um, There's been a lot of loss um, and and a lot of challenges. And please don't feel sorry for me. I'm not asking for that. Um, You know, we all have our challenges. We do. Mine just happen to be a little bit different than other people's, other person's challenges. But um, but I've been, I've been thinking about that bracelet, and then I've been thinking also about gratitude, the power of gratitude. Now, one of the challenges that I had is that when I transitioned genders, I lost my oldest daughter. Um, at the time, she was in her late teens, early 20s, and me transitioning from male to female uh, was very difficult for her. And, um, and when I say I lost, I mean, we went two and a half years without me seeing her. Our phone communications got down to maybe, uh, at, at the worst part, maybe once every two or three months that we would speak by telephone. Um, but but um, my daughter came back to me. She did. She had some of her own challenges, and we're not going to get into that. But as she dealt with her challenges, I think that she came to realize some things about me and that me being transgender wasn't a choice on my part. And I've got to tell you, the, the reason I'm sharing this story with you is because that one thing, the fact that I had lost my daughter but that she had come back to me, that one thing, more than anything else, continues to be a source of gratitude for me. It is. And, um, and, 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 and I, I'm trying my best, and it's very difficult because of COVID, because of, you know, all these other things that are coming at us to us right now, the political landscape, what we just talked about with Laura, all of that. I mean, it's very, very difficult, I think, to feel grateful about life. But I, I'm here to ask, not ask, but to advocate for trying to grab some gratitude as you go forward. I mean, all of you that are listening to my voice right now, um, there, there's, there has to be something that you are grateful for. The fact that you are alive, okay? I mean, if you're listening to me, you're alive. Um, and, I mean, if nothing else, be grateful for that, that you have survived, that you have the resiliency and the grit to have made it as, as long as you have, that you've been able to make it through this. And, um, and, and, and you know, and, and I cannot just stress enough 
the power of gratitude if you allow it to come in and you allow it to at least occupy a little bit of your brain, a little bit of your heart, a little bit of your soul every day and just kind of can give you some reserve, some ability to make your way. Um, I've also, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, I'm grateful for this show. Um, it is work. Um, it's uh, probably about at least 10 hours a week of my time one way or the other. And, um, you know, and I have a lot of other things going on. And, and, and I'll tell you, on Sunday afternoons, it's kind of a pain because I've got to sit down and prepare for the show. But, but I get to have this great discovery of, of people like Dolores Huerta, you know, and other idealists that I've talked about. I had no ideal, idea that they existed, that their work was out there. And so I'm grateful that I, I have the ability to simply talk with you and to share stuff, and, and I'm not very polished, we know that, and I'm, you know, all over the place with some of the things I say, but hopefully you know that I'm authentic, and then I come here not, not flashy, but I come here as real, and I'm, I'm grateful that you tune in. Oh, my, I'm looking at Brett, my great producer. I am so grateful for him because he puts up with a lot of challenges from me, um, and and so I think that we all have the ability to stop for a moment, okay, and find the things to be grateful for. Daughter, I don't, you don't even listen to this show, I'm sure, but maybe someday you will. Know how grateful I am for you to have come back. I am so, just so thankful that that happened. Okay, listeners, that's it. Another show, <laughs> Ra Ra by Ellie Krug. All right, a big thanks to our sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota, which gives people a second chance. Talk about gratitude. Um, and uh, if you know, you're out there and you want to sponsor this show, I would love it because we could use some more sponsors for Ellie 2.0 Radio. Brett Johnson, who I just said, I thank you for being a great producer. And you lis listeners, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being on Facebook Live. You get to see me seat dance. And thanks for you for coming every week. Tell others about this show, please, um, because I believe in the work that we are all collectively doing. Go out, do something this week to make the world a better place. Okay? I'll talk with you next week. Bye-bye.